Today, first of my good afternoon. It's just gone six minutes past two, and this is Women Today with me, Christy De Haven, and me, Nicola Holt. Hello, Nicola. It's been a long time. Hello. Yes, we were just working out, weren't we? Yeah, a Co- couple of months at least. A couple of months. Yeah. Yeah, it's nice to see, you. and I like the fact that you are adorned in a wildlife-themed T-shirt, which is very fitting for today's show. Thank you very much. <laughs> we'll be talking more about that in just a minute because uh, today we have another of our special Conister Rocks biographical series of programmes where we talk to some of the island's well-known personalities, people who've had an impact on some of the ways of our island life and we find out a little bit about their lives, what's taken them to this point and the music that means something to them. Today we are delighted to be joined by a woman who grew up Surrounded by bees and borstal boys, she ran her own market garden, looks after Lockton's, enjoys a spot of boating. In fact, she arrived today by boat. We'll find out more about that in just a moment. She really loves fast trains and whose careful planning, all-weather work and very green fingers have left their colourful mark on the glorious gardens at one of the island's most loved heritage sites. We're delighted to welcome Scylla Platt, horticulturist, with us today. Uh, Recently retired as head gardener at Craigneesh, Scylla, I'm intrigued. When you see an unloved garden or an outdoor space that's maybe a little bit, you know, sort of left to go, shall we say, is it difficult for you to walk by? Do you feel like you just have to sort of get stuck in there and sort it all out? No, I'm very happy that it's somebody else's problem, not mine. (laughs) Um, I particularly like going visiting other people's gardens because I know full well that, okay, I might just pull out the odd weed for them, but it's not my problem. So, yes, um, unfortunately, I can appreciate other people's gardens, whereas my own, I have to go home and all I see is the weeds. <laughs> Slightly disappointed in that answer because my garden needs some green fingers and I don't have any. <laughs> oh, I don't think you'll be able to get Silas to come and help. No, I'm that. retired. <laughs> Do you know what? One of my favourite quotes actually is, uh, is from Winnie the Pooh and it's, uh, weeds are flowers too when you get to know them. Of course they are. Yes. Yeah. So it's OK to leave some weeds, isn't it? Oh, I, as a beekeeper, I would leave all weeds too. <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm always telling children in schools that uh, what you must do is to go home and talk to your parents and if they've got dandelions in the grass, you must not let them mow them till the dandelions have finished flowering because bees adore dandelions. There you go. You see, we'll be finding a lot more about beekeeping uh, a little bit later on as well. Now, I think it's probably fairly obvious to say that there are plenty of benefits to working in the great outdoors and and gardening itself. What would you say, though, Scylla, that you personally get out of it or have gotten out of gardening for all these years? Oh, I absolutely adore being outside and it's an excuse to be outside. Um, In Lincolnshire, I used to actually run my own market garden and my husband transported me to the Isle of Man saying that he didn't appreciate having a wife who was gardening 11 hours a day in the summer. He never saw me, even though I actually was working on the doorstep. You must get through an awful lot of sunscreen. (laughs) I, strangely enough, I didn't use any in Lincolnshire, (gasps) but that was, what, 30 years ago. and, And of course, the sun was totally different then. You see that you can tell that it's a ginger speaking, can't you? Saying, uh, <laughs> mentioning the sunscreen. Uh, you mentioned your husband transported you to the Isle of Man. I have to bring up the fact that when Scylla came in today, she said that she transported herself here by rib. Yes, it's husband's rib. It's his pride and joy. And they're now puddling up to um, Laxey because my young folks are over. Um, my younger son and his girlfriend are over. 
and uh, they wanted desperately to go out in the rib and I suddenly remember that I was supposed to be here for the afternoon so I said why don't you give me a taxi ride up to um, Douglas dump me off and then pick me up again on the way home so that's what they've done See island life is just wonderful that's isn't fantastic. it? fantastic oh, You though? arrive in style I mean that's amazing I'm, go- I'm going to put that on my contract from now on that I need a, I need a boat to get <laughs> then again I'm in Derby Square so you'd have to go basically go from the bay around the corner <laughs> doesn't really work does it they need a canal to there obviously there you go let's make that thing happen have a trouble with parking space though that's a good point yeah (laughs) so uh, we'll be finding out much more about Scylla's work up about Craig Niche over the course of the show and also hearing some of the music that she's chosen and there's a really good variety of tunes as well Uh, but before we get on to that Nicola there's a a story in the news today that's been catching your eye yes this caught my eye because um, I don't know about anybody else but when you wash your hands for whatever reason do you use cold water or hot water. I've always been brought up to believe that you wash your hands with soap and hot water. Yeah. But there's always a but. In America, US scientists have poured cold water on the theory that washing hands with hot water kills ver- uh, kills germs. So I've got something in my eye. Uh, a very small study of about 20 people. So it's, it is a very that small is a study. Very it's not small very study. scientific. Yeah. Um, but a small study of 20 people found using water that was 15 degrees Celsius uh, left hands as clean as water that's heated to 38 degrees Celsius. The report in the Journal of Food Protection suggests that if this could help cut electricity bills in restaurants. Far-fetched, <laughs> if you ask me. Uh, in the study, a scientist at Rutgers University in New Jersey wanted to find out if the population assumption about the benefits of warm or hot water and the official guidance on hot water given to the food industry in the US was held true. So they asked 20 people to wash their hands 20 times, uh, each with water of 15 degrees, 26 degrees or 38 degrees Celsius. And they were asked to experiment with varying amounts of soap as well. And before they started the test, their hands were covered with harmless bugs. Mm. Uh, the researchers found that there was no difference in the amount of bugs removed by the water regardless of its temperature Uh, they do admit that this study is small and more extensive work needs to be carried out um, to see uh, what is the best way to remove harmful bacteria Uh, in the the UK the NHS experts say that you can use cold water or hot water to wash your hands Mm. and they say that you should wash your hands for at least 20 seconds which is about as long as it takes to sing happy birthday twice uh, and stress the importance of using enough soap to cover the whole surface of the hands. See, that's probably the thing, the soap more than anything, isn't it? But it is quite interesting, this, because you do sort of assume, don't you, that you need the, the sort of warmth to, to get rid of bugs as such. But at the same time, mm-hmm. does it does raise that question, which I, I do. I can't help but think that we're all a little bit too paranoid about germs and things and a bit too obsessed about always washing your hands. And that, that goes into great detail, doesn't it, about exactly how you should wash your hands in, in order to get them as clean as possible. But... Yeah, they've they've uh, um, in the in the study as well. They came up with some um, some tips of how to wash your hands mm. successfully. Uh, one of them was it should take twenty seconds. As I said about singing happy birthday twice. Uh, make sure you rub between your fingers on each hand. And they also recommend as well dry your hands well, ideally with a disposable towel, and then use the disposable towel to turn off the tap. So even throwing the towel away. Yeah. So there's all that sort of waste element as well. Uh, we're joined by Scylla Platt today. Scylla is a horticulturist and a gardener and someone who's obviously spent quite a lot of time with your hands sort of in the outdoors getting buried in the soil or whatever what do you think do you think that we're a bit too obsessed with the idea of sort of getting rid of germs and things what's your take on this no i definitely think that you should wash your hands before eating um as you say if i'm always delving outside in soil 
there is an awful lot of bacteria and nasties that you can actually carry on your hands and one of them is botulism believe it or not so if you have a cut even you must take great care of a cut if you're using bare hands in soil Mm. <laughs> oh, Nicola's showing us her thumb. She has a plaster <laughs> yeah. on her thumb. Take right. care, Nicola. But but I do think that um, these gels are a bit of a fraud and a frost because uh, I was been reading a few bits and pieces about the very hand cleaning um, things, and if you have soil on your hands, no no amount of gel is going to get rid of those pathogens that are on mm. your hands. You must use soap and water. Yeah, because it doesn't get rid of the dirt, does it? No, it doesn't. You must take that off. And I think in the extremes, maybe if you haven't got any water and you haven't got any soap, okay, use gels. But otherwise, I would I would definitely advocate soap and water. And as I was saying earlier, that our doctor, when I was a child, and that was a long time ago, um, he always said, never wash your hands in hot water. Always use cold because the warmth actually keeps the bugs growing. Oh, that's a really good point. That's a very good point. If you think about we put things in the freezer. Yeah. To You know, fish mm. fingers, chicken, whatever. And it, it freezes the bacteria, doesn't it? So maybe this tiny study has got something. Mm. But I still prefer hot water, though. It feels better, doesn't <laughs> well, it? Well, warm water, not hot water, because mm. that'll hurt. Yeah. <laughs> but your father had an interest in hygiene, didn't he? Yes, he used to lecture in veterinary hygiene at Reading University. Um, so he uh, must have tried to instill that in you as well. There was definitely uh, certain things like cooking meat properly that he instilled in me from a very early age. And I, and I cannot eat what I would classify as raw meat, semi-cooked beef nowadays. My, his words haunt me <laughs> <laughs> when I see people st sticking this red meat in their mouths. I think my dad would actually have a fit if he could see you yeah you do have to be very careful obviously but we'd mm. love to know what you think of this one double six one double seven uh do you think we're a bit too obsessed with cleanliness and hygiene or are these very good points that are being made partly by the study that nicholas found also what silla platt is saying at the moment about being very careful uh, do let us know one double six one double seven or you can email studio at manxradio.com be interested if anyone's listening who uh, is over here with bikes covered in oil and dirt and the likes i'd imagine they probably leave their hands looking a little bit grubby for a while before they eat the butties but uh, do let us know now as i said we are mentioned by silla platt and we mentioned that you are recently retired as head gardener of craig niche but i have a feeling you probably aren't retired as a gardener at all are you silly it's not something you sort of easily give up is it well it's not it's the retirement bit it always amuses me when people say are you enjoying your retirement <laughs> really i'm still working just as much but i'm not getting paid for it that's the difference <laughs> so what are you doing then what's keeping you keeping you busy at the moment um, well, I've always wanted to actually do my own garden, believe it or not, which I rent at the end of the prom in Port St Mary. So I have done a little bit more in there. We have a, a piece of land up the slock where I grow trees and my husband keeps sheep. And so we've done a bit more up there as well. And of course, I'm heavily involved in the Isle of Man beekeepers. I'm the education officer for them. And I'm also now for my sins, the southern chairman. So... Uh, yes, there's plenty to be done there. There is plenty to be done. We'll be, we'll be finding out more about the bees a little bit later on because it's something we've talked about on the show before with Harry Owens and we've got a lot to be proud of, I think, when it comes to our bees. But when you talk about um, gardens themselves and you have your own garden, do you think that gardens 
reflect the personality of their owner or is a garden just a garden no matter oh, no, who owns it? Definitely it reflects the personality. You can tell that I'm a seriously untidy person who hates to pull up, pull up something that might actually look pretty later on. <laughs> and having my bees in the same garden, of course, everything has to be thought of in terms of food for the bees. So I have cabbages in full flower and if anybody looks over my gate and says, they should have pulled those out long ago. Well, my excuse, and it's a very good excuse, is my bees love them. And in fact, when I start pulling them out when they're in full flower, the bees attack me. Do they really? Mm. Yeah, Leave those our flowers are where they are. Yes, oh, go that's away. Wonderful. Well, it's not wonderful, obviously. I don't want you to be attacked by the bees, but, <laughs> but there you go. I know better. <laughs> it's an interesting point, though, because I went up to see the gardens at Craignish early this week um, to interview Karen, who's stepped mm. into your, your shoes or maybe your Wellingtons and such. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, we'll be playing out that interview next week. But I loved how natural the gardens looked and how <laughs> wild they looked, which presumably is how they would have been. You know, it's it's all very clean and tidy, but you've also got that element of just nature being allowed to be nature. And I loved that because I have to say, if I'm in an extremely well manicured garden, I find it very difficult to relax. Does that make sense? Yes, I can understand that because I think it's very sad if we've got to actually force nature over the hedge, so to speak. I like to have nature in there because of all the wild insects that are so beneficial in all sorts of ways if you start annihilating stuff. And when I first started at Craigniche, I made this policy of organic growing too. So I didn't use any pests, um, any, any pesticides. Um, I actually tried to use natural pesticides by just growing things correctly feeding them well, making sure that they weren't overwatered and soft and therefore prime fodder for aphids, etc. And the local bird population and the worms and the other insects really helped. That's um, interesting. If I'd used pesticides, then I would have annihilated them too. So you would have thought that it would be extremely difficult to grow anything nowadays without the sort of chemical nature mm. of things, but you can do it then if, as long as you plan. Well, the biggest problem, of course, is always slugs and snails. We can never mm. get around that, having a, a damp environment on the Isle of Man. There's plenty of mollusks just with their knives and forks out ready and their bibs <laughs> on, and they're just waiting for your nice, tender, fresh lettuce to go out. So basically, you have to put them out when they're a bit older and so they're not ah. quite so soft and tender. So my windowsills at home were always lined with plants. It's quite nice, actually, to just have my plants there now. Oh, is that <laughs> lovely? It does, does the idea of the little pots with the beer in work? It slugs? does. It really does. But you, I got a bit of a name for myself. I think the people at the Albert thought I was uh, <laughs> drinking the stuff because I used to go back so much, so I actually went off getting it from them. <laughs> I didn't like them to think that I was a drunk in secret <laughs> using their slops, but uh, it really does work. Wow. Nicola looks very confused there. Have you not heard of that, Nick? No, uh, no, um, no I'm, I'm paying attention. <laughs> what? Beer? Oh, see, if, if I'm right, let me get this right. So you sort of dig a little hole, put a pot in the hole and put a bit of beer in the bottom of the hole and the slugs are attracted to it. Is that right? Yes, and actually you can just use something like the washings from a jam jar as well. I've found that's wow. just as good. As long as it's got a bit of sugar in it, they seem to sniff it out. Um, but one thing you must always remember is whatever you let down into the ground, and I always use a, 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 an old um, pop bottle with a hole cut in the side, you must have a little bit of it above the ground because ground beetles, which actually will attack 
uh, slugs and snails, they will fall into your trap and you don't want to get rid of the ground beetles. So you must have a bit of a lip above the soil so when they're running around in their little daily activities, they don't suddenly take a nosedive and can't get out. <laughs> Do you know what? These are wonderful gardening hacks. I think I feel I feel a special regular feature coming on with Oh now. no. This would be fantastic. <laughs> uh, speaking of that, actually, you have been involved in teaching uh, with, with children as well, to sort of teaching your craft as such. What you're describing now sounds like it would be wonderful fun for children. You know, everything we've just said so far, you think mm. kids outside getting in there, getting involved in, in the garden. But how nowadays do you convince um, young people to appreciate the idea of gardening? Because they seem to have very different priorities now. Well, it is very difficult. We're in a sort of technological age, aren't we? And I think the outdoors is has unfortunately been fed to children nowadays as somewhere to be quite frightened of. And going back to the hand-washing thing, you know, if you get too paranoid about always having the kids with clean hands and clean clothes and they can't enjoy themselves. I mean, what child wants to be permanently clean and in a frilly frock? I don't think I ever had a frilly frock. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> uh, do tell us, though, speaking of teaching, I'm intrigued about the, uh, I'm going to call it the Borstal Boys experience. <laughs> you described it as a baptism of fire. Yes, well, I didn't grow up with Borstal Boys. I just want to make this quite clear. It did sound a bit like that from the way I put it. I'll take that back. I'm sorry. <laughs> no, I apologise to my brother. He's never, never been a Borstal Boy. Anyway. Yeah, um, this was when I was um, fairly newly married and we lived in Lincolnshire and I was running my market garden and I was great friends because I was a horticulturist, great friends with the people who were running the horticultural unit at Kestevan Agricultural College. And um, they said, would you like to try a bit of your bit? Well, would you like to try your hand at uh, doing a bit of teaching? So I said, well, I've never done any teaching before. And they said, well, it really doesn't matter as long as you look after these lads when they're out. So, OK, says me. <laughs> and they cart me off to Boston, where they actually, just down the coast from where the Borstal was, and I was presented with this room full of Borstal boys. And uh, I shall never forget, <clears throat> they're quite intelligent, some of them. And in those days, they were quite well behaved, which was good. But I can remember being asked about Mrs Platt, now, can you describe the Golgi body to me? And I thought, oh, I know there is one, but I can't remember what the heck it is. And I had to stand there and say, I'm very sorry, but unfortunately I've forgotten all about those since I was did my botany. And uh, so I went away and looked it up. I've never forgotten now, but uh, don't ask me. I, I know, I'm re I really want to, but I can see there's a look of panic in her eyes, so I'm not going to go there. Well, we'll let other people look in it a up, cell. shall we? It's in a cell. It's one of the bodies that's in a, the individual cells inside a plant anyway. Oh. But uh, yeah, I've never forgotten that. But... It was it was very good experience and nothing has been bad since then, I can tell you. <laughs> well, we're looking forward to hearing about many more of your experiences, but uh, let's hear your first piece of music. What have you chosen as song one and why? I think people might guess. Well, yes, uh, I often get my name mistaken for this particular lady. My name is Scylla Platt, please. And, uh, of course, as soon as I say that, they say, what, Scylla Black? <laughs> <laughs> But um, Scylla Black, Anyone Who Had a Heart, um, is imprinted on me because it's the first pop song that I really got to grips with when I was young. And I was staying away from home at the time and a friend and I used to drive her mother balmy with this song, playing it over and over. We actually bought the single and we played it and played it and played it till I don't think it was possible to play it anymore. So I remember that's my youth, that is. Anyone? 
one who ever loved could look at me and know that I love you. Anyone who ever dreamed could look at me and know I dream of you. Knowing I Unmistakable voice there of Scylla Black, not Scylla Platt, who is our studio guest this afternoon. We'll be hearing much more from Scylla after this. The Nation Station, Manx Radio. Women Today. You are listening to Women Today and it's just coming up to 2.30 now. Now we're in the company of a horticulturist. It's horticulturist, not horticulturalist, isn't it, Scylla? A horticulturalist. You see, I wrote it both ways, just to see if I got... So it's that one. Uh, Scylla Platt is the <laughs> easiest way to describe you, probably. Uh, Scylla, we do ask people when they send us information about themselves to give us a few sort of key moments from their childhood. I have to pull you up on one of them and uh, just a warning for anyone who's eating their butties that uh, there might there might be something a little bit interesting in this section because you're the first person who's written a biography and included the line, I remember helping Dad dissect a pig on the back lawn. <laughs> you must tell us about that. Yes, well, Dad being a veterinary surgeon, he believed that his children should know about the insides of animals and not just the outsides <laughs> and the fluffy bits. So... Uh, I can remember him bringing home some piglets that uh, came from a herd of pigs that were suffering from something and he wasn't sure what was wrong with them. So he was given two piglets to operate on. So I held the box whilst he did in one of them. Um, the other one was in a different box. And uh, he then proceeded to unpick it all over the back lawn. Oh, my word. And it was absolutely fascinating. I was riveted. Um, and he explained every piece as it came out. And because he wasn't worried about it, I never thought that there was any need to be worried about it. I just couldn't believe what was inside an animal in this cute little coat. And suddenly you undress it, and inside there's all these fascinating things that make it work. It's so, the mechanics of real life yes, at the end of exactly. the day, isn't it? And the length of the gut, I couldn't believe it. It stretched all the way down the lawn. <laughs> so, but it didn't make you want to follow in his footsteps and get into veterinary science then? <sighs> I, I vaguely thought that I would, but uh, I knew that the students that he had 
It was at least a five-year course. In fact, my dad always proudly said that to be a veterinary surgeon takes longer than to be a doctor. And in fact, he used to pull our doctor up on some of the things that he said were old-fashioned in the veterinary world. So uh, <laughs> I, I didn't think I wanted to study for quite that long. Mm. So it put me off. My brother also, I think, decided that. He went into uh, agricultural engineering <laughs> instead. But I've always been fascinated and I can sit and watch operations on the television where my husband has to run away. <laughs> it's interesting that because when I was a child and Beth and I were discussing this the other day, I used to love watching operations as well mm. when I was a child. But weirdly, the older I've gotten and I suppose the more sort of vulnerable I know that we really are, mm. it's put me off it now. <laughs> but yeah, so it's very interesting. But you, you obviously had an interesting childhood because you mentioned as well that your, your parents would often have students home and, and sort of eat dinner yeah. with you. Yes, yes. What, well, that must have been an experience. My father, well, I was a lot younger then, so I didn't take that much notice of it but my father used to take pity on foreign students and he would regularly bring them back for a meal. My mum was a brilliant cook and so she would uh, put on a lovely sort of meat and two veg type meal and they would very much appreciate it and dad would just take time to listen to them and encourage them and make them feel part of the um, set up at the university though uh, I must say that he was offered a few bribes to get them through their exams. I hasten to say he never, ever took them and very gently said, we don't do that in this country. <laughs> well done, that man. But it must have given you an interesting sort of insight into to the world at large as well. Yes, but you're very accepting as a child. That's just what happened. People came back, they were fed, they chatted to me dad, and particularly me dad because he was always very approachable and interesting man. And, uh, yeah, that, that's what happened. Um, but he, he certainly left me with a lot of good ideas as to how you try and get on with people and that you listen to them. Mm. You know, it's no good larding people over with what you think the whole time. You've got to listen. And even though he was a very well-educated man, he listened. And even to the students. And I, I thought that was brilliant. And I picked that up far more than what he actually said. Well said. I do like that. It's a lovely way of looking at things. Uh, let's hear what your second song is now. You do have a really varied mix of music here and there's some beautiful <laughs> classical pieces. This this is the first yeah. of your classical pieces now. Yes, I, I don't really know why I decided that I liked classical music, but I think... If you're interested in music at all, and my parents used to cart me off to see Gilbert and Sullivan as an annual treat, so I had a vague interest in classic, well, slightly classical music, I suppose, from that point of view. Um, but I came across these on the radio, and uh, then I bought the records, and my father had this <clears throat> dilapidated radiogram, and I used to play these records endlessly on them because my brother was five years older and he was sent away to boarding school, so I spent a lot of time on my own. And if I wasn't down making camps in the wood, I was actually listening to records, uh, which is what you did in, in those days. You didn't play on your little sort of electronic gadgets. You would listen to records, and, and I... I still, I mean, even the smallest piece of these, this uh, record makes the hairs on the back of my neck stand up and it's, I just sort of bathe in it. It's lovely. It's a beautiful piece and it is Beethoven Symphony Number no. 6 in F Pastoral.
Beethoven Symphony in F number six pastoral. While we have that in the background, I'm just going to say I love the fact that you chose that cellar. And when I when I realised you'd chosen that and I, I played it and realised what piece of music it was, it just, for me, it made me think of spring, which is why I think, do you know what? It totally makes sense as to why you chose that. Do you think that's partly why? Um, it makes me think of the countryside, I think, yes. And having lived in the countryside and really in the countryside for a lot of my youth, I think um, it just spoke to me in a different way. And Nicola, we just had a nice conversation off there as well. People who know you will think of you as, you know, you sort of like your 90s and your dance music like and your pop, pop music. <laughs> and yet you love a bit of classical I, as well. I also will every now and again. It's been known. Well, it's not known actually because I do it privately. Listen to a bit of classical music. I think um, classical music is very powerful. Um, picture paints a thousand words, but I think classical music can give the individual listening a whole range of emotions and a whole range of images in their mind. Um, and the person sitting next to them will have something completely, they'll take something completely different from it. Um, and I just think you can be taken on a journey with classical music um, without the power of, of words or lyrics and words that have got to, to mean something to an individual. Um, and of course, anybody can listen to classical music. Well said. Wise words there, Nicola. Who knew you had that in you? <laughs> <laughs> Don't tell anyone. They'll think I'm sensible. <laughs> well, speaking of going on a journey, um, Silla Platt, you moved to the island in 1988 and you taught special needs gardening and interest group gardening. Tell us a little bit about what that involved. Well, there again, um, I went... I can't remember exactly how I got into this, but um, my husband, as soon as he hit the island, because he too is an agricultural engineer, um, he was gobbled up and he's been in agricultural engineering teaching ever since he arrived. Um, and I think he must have mentioned something um, in the education world uh, that I was um, a horticulturalist and that I had been doing teaching Quite apart from the Borstal Boys, I did teach others as well when I was allowed to, um, and that I had teaching experience. And so the college actually approached me and said, would I like to have a, a go teaching um, special needs children? And there is now a classroom on the patch that we were given, but I used to take them out and we grubbed around in the soil out in this little wall garden, which was just on the sort of south side of the college um, and we made a really nice job of it. I mean, some of the lads just wanted to dig holes, which was fine, because it really turned the soil over well. But we also planted one or two really pretty things around the walls. And uh, I think that the young people got quite a lot out of it. I know I did. I found it very hard work. But um, yes, I think it's a shame really that I think they still do it at Glen Crutchery that sort of thing but um, it was done in the college at that point there is something about I think isn't there um, nurturing something and mm. seeing it grow and come to life mm. and then of course if it's something with longevity then you can keep returning and see this thing exactly. that you have planted and, and helped to grow it, mm. it must be quite a wonderful experience mm. it was a bit heartbreaking when I turned up one day and found that all the climbing plants that we put in had just been grubbed up and this classroom oh. was planted oh. on top of everything it was a very uh, special little corner that but uh, and then with the other sort of interest group it was found that various people who were getting towards retirement age or were retired 
would like to do something as regards gardening. And that was great fun. We had quite a big group of um, people who came in once a week for an afternoon. And uh, I changed it slightly so that we, after we'd had a few sessions on how to grow stuff organically, etc., we then went and sort of had a look in different people's gardens. So we travelled around the island looking in people's back gardens and I sort of told them anything they wanted to know, how to grow things, how to prune things, etc. And it, it was great until they decided to put the price of this course right up and then it just went... That's oh, it. <laughs> but it still happened, and that's the important Did. thing. And and uh, you do that. You actually went to agricultural college to study horticulture, didn't you? Which is where you met your husband. You've just been talking about your husband. Mm. I'm interested because you say you were one of the first three women to receive a national diploma in commercial horticulture, which must have made you very proud. But I'm curious to, as to why you think there weren't more women. Was it because of the nature of the course, or do you think it was the the nature of higher no. education then? It was the fact that they just um, invented the higher national diploma and uh, I was just happened to be on the first course of that um, and it was great it was a fantastic experience I shall never forget and that's nearly 50 years ago which is frightening but um, both of the other women went one went on to manage two acres of glass which was quite unusual in those days and the other one went out into the industry and I actually lost track of what she did but I know she did carry on and work in the industry um, and I then was a horticultural technician in Nottinghamshire. That was my job. And I loved that as well. So it's obviously, it just set me on the right road. And what does that actually involve, being a horticultural technician? Well, it's almost like being a head gardener, except there was a head gardener. So, uh, yeah, you're given an area of ground which is for educational purposes and you have what we call a family bed, which was plants that were all part of individual families so that and they were everything was labeled and it was my job to make sure they were labeled correctly and I had a greenhouse which I used to support the lecturers with growing stuff for all the practicals and I looked after all the stuff that the students had grown I actually did the weather records which I was very proud of and I'm sure I made a complete horlicks of them <laughs> the weather in Nottinghamshire changed when I was doing it but uh, yes because my husband did tell me there were some things I got slightly wrong but every, anyway it didn't matter um, and yes just general jobs like that and clearly stood you in good stead for, for being the, the head gardener at Greg Nish, which we'll find more about mm. after the break. But before we do, uh, let's hear your third song. I have to admit, I hadn't heard th of this before, <laughs> um, Butterworth. I didn't know anything yes. about this. So do do explain a little bit about this for us. Well, it's just another sort of hairs on the back of the neck type piece of music. Um, I don't know how I came across it. It's always been part of my life from an early age now. So uh, I used to play that until my parents were completely bored to tears with it. But they're very good. They would go one end of the house and I'd be at the other end, more or less like kids nowadays, I suppose. But um, So the, a Shropshire Lad, it's just, again, it's a very sort of pastoral piece. And you really can imagine some ploughman's lad out in the fields on a cold winter's day. It's just magic and Lincolnshire actually um, it, it really inspires you to think about people working out in the fields of long ago it is just that sort of a county beautifully described this is Butterworth the Shropshire lad
breathtaking. That is Shropshire Lad, Butterworth Shropshire Lad there. Absolutely gorgeous piece of music as chosen by our studio guest, Silla Platt, this afternoon, who's the recently retired head gardener from Craig Nation. We'll be speaking more with Silla after this, which is the second instalment of Howard Kane's 30 Day Wild series. It's time to go wild again. The Manx Wildlife Trust and Manx Radio challenge you to try the 30 Days Wild Challenge this June and make a space for some nature in your life. It can't be that difficult. Even Howard can manage it. And here we are, right up as far north as you can get on the Isle of Man. And amazing how there's always people here. It doesn't seem to matter what time of year. There are always people here. I remember coming around TT last year and there must have been 200 bikers up here, even though it was the race day. Incredible. Not quite that number today, but nonetheless, the car park isn't empty. A few people around. And we've come up because it's that time of year again that if you are a fan of coming up to the beaches or going around the beaches in the north and northwest, it's that time where your access is going to be slightly restricted because it's nesting time for some of the uh, seabirds, particularly the terns, little terns, arctic terns, common terns and such like. And as we just come up here, now we see the signs saying that uh, ring plover are nesting in the area, keeping dogs on the lead until uh, 30th of August, and, of course, not to disturb the birds. Louise Sampson, as warden. Ring plovers and oyster catchers also nest outside the fenced area, so we do encourage people not to walk on the top of the beach, to stay down by the sea, and that way they'll avoid trampling on any eggs. Once the chicks hatch out they do move across the entire beach and they will move below the high tide mark so you do need to be really careful where you're walking. Absolutely. So can we go down this way today or can we go to the left right? We'll head up a little bit this way so we will just leave the end of the car park and uh, paddle down onto the beach a little bit avoiding the uh, crucial areas. head up just towards the lighthouse there. There is one lone oyster catcher nesting in this area here as well and she's sat on four eggs at the moment uh-huh. and uh, last year she hatched out three chicks and unusually all three chicks survived and they all went on to fledge and they were actually wandering around on this top bit of grassland here <laughs> and they did really well so it's absolutely fantastic to you know watch them from tiny chicks to go through to fledging young which is really nice so the main so the main area for the actual fencing then i'm just coming up to it down here and the main species we're talking about, as you mentioned before, are, are the terns, common tern, arctic tern yeah. and little tern. Common tern, uh, sorry not common tern, arctic tern here. We don't actually have any common tern nesting on the Isle of Man anymore. So it's just the arctic terns here at the point. Okay. Um, the little terns nest on the NNR. So, yeah, last year we had 50 pairs of arctic tern nesting in this area here. And then once the chicks are, are fledged... I mean, do they start actually leaving shortly after that or how long do they stay around these shores? They'll stay for another couple of weeks with the adults feeding them and they'll learn to fish themselves during that time and then they'll slowly move back down south with the adults all the way back to South Africa, the west coast of South Africa. And that's the incredible thing, I yeah. always think, isn't it? When you see these birds here up on the point of air or around Snail or north of the Isle of Man and you know that by the time we've got to sort of, you know, harvest time or October or whatever... 
they're going to be heading all the way back to South Africa. Yeah. I mean, it's a phenomenal journey. Yeah. They come here specifically to feed on the small sand eels and the small herring that we have off our shores here, which is what brings them here to feed their young and rear their young. And do you find any of the visitors coming for the TT, do some of them actually come here because they know there are other turns and, and uh, are interested in seeing it, or are they all just basically doing a tour of the Isle of Man? Um, both. Uh, yeah. Definitely people want to come here to see the turns and, you know, they're really interested in finding out about them and they like seeing them and talking about them. But also it's such a fantastic spot to come to anyway and people like to come to the north and the south end of the island. Hopefully the message gets through every year. I know it's one of these things that we uh, frequently talk about and, uh, as we say, always worth a sight. And uh, if you're travelling around the island, whether you live on the island or not, if you haven't been up to the point of air for a while, make sure obviously stay out of the areas but it's still worth coming up to take a look and you don't have to get that close bring your binoculars park come around to the outsides and there's always plenty to see and again as louise says it's an education thing the more people appreciate the great wildlife bird life and species we have here then the more people will be inclined to look after them Get down and dirty and try some random acts of wildness with Manx Radio and the Manx Wildlife Trust. Connect with nature. It'll grow on you. Thanks, Howard. We'll have the next instalment of the Wild Series on Monday. Nicola, you've got an update on the roads for us? Uh, yeah, just an update with the road policing unit officers. They're currently responding to a further RTC, this road traffic collision at Handley's near to Bagarrow, and they're asking people to avoid the area while they deal with the incident. Thank you for that. We'll keep you updated on that as and when we hear more. And we'll have our final chat with our studio guest, Scylla Platt, in just a minute. The Nation Station, Manx Radio. Women Today. You are listening to Women Today, just coming up to six minutes to three now. Uh, we're joined by horticulturalist Scylla Platt, who's just recently retired as head gardener up at Craigneesh. It's been lovely chatting with you today, Scylla. And uh, we were up there earlier in the week with Karen Griffiths, uh, who's taken over the role as head gardener. And she talked a lot about your dedication to planting and sourcing heritage vegetables and also replanting the sort of Manx varieties. Um, how do you go about sourcing these plants that presumably aren't actually very much around anymore well I, I got a lot of seed originally from organic way the heritage seed library that they have where you can't actually buy them you have to be a member and they will allow you six different sorts each year so I started with um, old varieties the older the better because I, I thought they would have come to the Isle of Man just because people brought stuff across and I grew them here and I th then saved the seed and I always saved the ones that were the best um, because I assumed they were adapting to their climate. And actually, I think that was true. Um, over the 18 years that I worked up there, I think some of them did, although some of them probably tended not to have as good crops as one would hope. Um, I don't think I quite got it right in some occasions, but on the whole, that's how I did it. And I used to have a lady also who came from the Irish seed savers and she used to bring me a packet of seeds from over there because I do think a lot of stuff would have come from Ireland. Yeah, and probably course, blown the seeds blown over. Well, no, imagine, not that so much, but I think, you know, um, seafarers would go across to Ireland just as much as they'd go to the UK. And I think that they would bring seed back from there. And having a very damp climate like our own, they did well. 
And I love the story as well that uh, that I heard about the fact that not everything quite goes to plan. There was that <laughs> you were trying to restore the hedgerows and something didn't quite go to plan there. Um, when I did think that we should have hedges because of the wind problem up there. It's it, in the teeth of the southwesterlies in Craignish, as everybody knows. Um, but um, Stanley Caron, who was one of the last remaining occupants of Craignish, he said. We didn't have any hedges at all when I was a child, and before that, no hedges. It was just stone walls. So I said, right, OK, we'll not <laughs> go down that road. But they've crept up a little bit because I think, well, you know, modern days and the fuchsia was brought in the Victorian era, so there is a few fuchsia hedges up there and people love them. Oh, it's beautiful. And I have to admit, having been up there the other day, this is the perfect time of year to go and look at those mm. gardens, isn't it? It is. Yes, it definitely is. So colourful. Mm. What What would you say then you are most proud of? Because, you know, it, obviously you've left a legacy up there because mm. you've pretty much created those gardens. What are you most proud of of your work at Craig well, I didn't create the gardens. I resuscitated them, I think, is what you would say. <laughs> because when I started up there, it was all about the little cottages and the gardens were completely ignored, except by Sue Creasy, who did have a go. But she was busy demonstrating. She was an amazing lady, or well, still is an amazing lady, with her uh, home dyeing and knitting and weaving and all that sort of stuff. But she um, she couldn't cope with the other gardens, and they were just left to go knee-high grass, and I couldn't bear to see that. And also, I wanted somewhere to grow heritage vegetables, so I muscled my way in and actually made myself a job up there. Brilliant. Well, we're looking forward to hearing much more about your work on Monday because we will have uh, the interview that you did with Karen Griffiths up mm. there who's uh, who very much talks in great detail about all of the wonderful plants and vegetables and everything that's up there. So that'll be on Monday along with uh, John Farragher who's coming in to talk to us about foraging and also Tanya Anderson who's coming in from Lovely Greens to find out about her recent adventures at YouTube Space Camp. Uh, you do have two more songs. We're not going to have time to play the last one which interestingly was Pharrell Williams' Happy so I might see if I can convince young Alex Brindley to play it in his show he's look, he's, he's nodding, he's nodding, he can play it in his show so uh, the song that we are going to play for you now, uh, just tell us a bit about it because it's very interesting. Well as I said before my parents would cart me off to Oxford once, because uh, we're living in Reading or on the outskirts of, once a year we'd go and see some Gilbert and Sullivan and I have the complete um, set of the LPs of Gilbert and Sullivan and this, this I always think is a wonderfully put together piece of a song Silla Platt, it's been wonderful to be in your company for the past hour. Thank you very much for being with us. Do enjoy your retirement. This is Nightmare Song, sung by Martin Green. Love nightmare-like lies heavy on my chest And weaves itself into my midnight slumber When you're lying awake with a dismal headache And repose is tabooed by anxiety I conceive you may use any language you choose To indulge him without impropriety For your brain is on fire The bedclothes conspired of usual slumber to plunder you First your counterpane goes and uncovers your toes Then your sheet slips demurely from under you The blanketing tickles you feel Women Today